Okay, before you get all excited and jumpy to hear the story of McDonald's, no, that's not what we are here for today. I use that term because what better euphemism for globalization as a whole other than McDonald's itself? Ah yes, globalization, capitalism's flag bearer. Globalization has defined almost every aspect of our society's growth over the past hundred years. The globalization trend eventually went and crashed in the catastrophe of World War One, followed by the era of post-war productionism, the Great Depression, and then World War Two. After World War Two in the mid 1940s, the U.S. led efforts to revive international trade and investment under, you know, negotiated ground rules back then. Started a second wave of globalization, although buffeted by periodic downturns and mounting political scrutiny. We have got globalization to thank for the availability of everyday items like avocados, annual events like Black Friday, and even your favorite show on Netflix. But what exactly is globalization in the context of the present day? How does it actually impact our lives and why is it so important? Even furthermore, owing to everything that changed in the world following 2020 and right now with the Russian invasion of Ukraine, are we correct to believe that this will reverse the globalization trend that we have seen unprecedented for almost 80 years and if so how does it affect capitalism we will explore all of these questions and more covering everything from the history of globalization to our economies and the changes it will eventually go through within the next decade let's get right into it roll the intro cash me if you can your gateway into the world of financial freedom Globalization is how businesses or other organizations develop international influence or start operating on a global scale. Globalization promotes and speeds up how we move and exchange things worldwide from goods and services to money and even technology. So it is the result of the opening up of the global economy and the increase in trade between nations. In other words, countries that were hitherto close to trade and foreign investment opened up their economies and to global trade, increasing the interconnectedness and integration of the world's economies. This is a brief introduction to globalization. Now further on, globalization can also mean that countries liberalize their import protocols and welcome foreign investment into sectors that are the mainstays of their economy. This means that countries become magnets for attracting global capital by opening up their economies to multinational corporations. Globalization also means that countries liberalize their visa rules and procedures to permit the free flow of people from country to country. Moreover, globalization results in freeing up the unproductive sectors for investment and the productive sectors for export-related activities, resulting in a win-win situation for the world's economies. So, in a broader sense, globalization is grounded in the theory of comparative advantage, which states that countries that are good at producing a particular good are better off exporting it to countries that are less efficient at producing that good. Conversely, the latter country can then export the goods that it grows efficiently to the former country, which might be deficient. The underlying assumption here is that not all countries are good at producing all sorts of goods and hence they benefit by trading with each other. Further, countries tend to gain by dealing with each other because of the wage differential and how different countries are endowed with additional resources, etc. 
globalization also means that governments of the world subscribe to the rules and procedures of the WTO or the World Trade Organization that oversees the terms and conditions of trade between countries. There are other world bodies like the UN and several arbitration bodies where countries agree in principle to observe the policies of free trade and non-discriminatory trade policies when they open up their economies. Then we obviously have to talk about the G20. The G20 is a global grouping of governments and central bank governors from 19 countries and the EU. The G20 was formed in 1999 to discuss global economic and financial stability. The G20 countries account for roughly 80% of the global economic output, nearly 75% of international trade and approximately two-thirds of the worldwide population. The G20 has, you know, actually struggled to coordinate monetary and fiscal policies and combat problems like tax evasion and corruption. And because of this and other failures to coordinate globalization, nationalist movements worldwide argue that countries should pursue their own interests or form productive coalitions. We'll get into that. Okay, now for a brief background, let's get into a bit of history. People have been trading goods almost since the dawn of time. But in the first century BC, something unusual happened. For the first time in history, Chinese luxury goods appeared on the other side of Eurasia, in Rome. They arrived after traveling thousands of miles on the Silk Road. Trade had become global, not just local or regional. But that didn't exactly mean that globalization had begun. Actual global trade began during the age of discovery. Starting in the late 15th century, European explorers connected East and West accidentally by discovering the Americas. The Portuguese, Spanish and later the Dutch and English discovered, then subjugated and integrated new lands into their economies. Exploration rocked the world. Columbus's infamous discovery of America ended three Colombian civilizations and Magellan's circumnavigation opened a door to the spice lands, bypassing Arab and Italian mediators. While trade remained a small portion of the total GDP, it changed people's lives. And as a result of the introduction of new foods, the price of spices fell dramatically. But economists still do not consider this to be the truly global era. This happened with the first wave of globalization around 1914. By the end of the 18th century, Britain had started to dominate the world, both geographically and technologically, with innovations like the steam engine and the industrial weaving machine. The first industrial revolution era. The British industrial revolution was a tremendous global trade engine. One advantage of steamships and trains was transporting goods over long distances. However, industrialization enabled Britain to produce goods in high demand globally, such as iron, textiles, and manufactured goods. The numbers showed that resulted in globalization, like for a century, trade grew at 3% a year. Exports increased from 6% of global GDP in the early 1800s to 14% just before World War I. But while Britain benefited the most from globalization due to its capital and technology, others did as well by exporting other goods. But then, because of World War I in 1914, the bargaining high society of the West lost almost everything, right? Including globalization. Basically, the West was ravaged. War replaced trade, destruction replaced construction, and countries closed their borders once again. The financial markets between the wars 
further weakened the global economy and its links. The US Great Depression ended the South American boom and caused bank runs worldwide. 1939-1945 saw another world war. And by the end of World War II, trade as a percentage of global GDP had fallen to 5%, the lowest in over a century. But here is the interesting part. International trade began to rise again under the leadership of a new hegemon, the USA. And with the help of the second industrial revolution technologies like the car and the plane. Initially though, the Iron Curtain divided the world into two spheres of influence. But after the fall of the Iron Curtain in 1989, globalization genuinely became global. After World War II, the US-backed European Union and other free trade initiatives increased international trade. Similarly, the Soviet Union back then used to increase international trade through centralized planning rather than the free market, we all know that. And that had a significant impact. In 1989, for example, exports accounted for 14% of global GDP, as in 1914. It coincided with a rise in the Western middle class income. And after the fall of the Berlin Wall and the Soviet Union, globalization became, globalization became an all-conquering force. Most countries, including many newly independent ones, signed free trade agreements with the World Trade Organization. And even in 2001, China, a secluded rural economy for the most of the 20th century, joined WTO and began manufacturing for the world. The US set the tone and led the way in this new world. And many benefited, to be honest. Simultaneously, a new third industrial revolution technology, the internet, connected people worldwide. Kane's phone orders in 1914 could now be placed online. Instead of weeks, they would arrive in a few days. Production, sourcing and distribution could all be done globally. And that brings me to the state of globalization today. The Russian invasion of Ukraine has prompted new predictions of the end of globalization, similar to those made during the COVID-19 pandemic. However, global cross-border flows have risen sharply since the pandemic began. The war will likely reduce many types of international business activity and cause some geographic shifts, but not cause a collapse of global flows. This conflict in Ukraine is causing supply constraints and inflation, and the consequences are severe for Russia and Ukraine's main exports, food and fuel. A broader retreat from international trade, further increasing inflation, is actually unlikely. Several countries are lowering tariffs to fight inflation. The imperative to maintain allied cooperation should also reduce the risk of escalating protectionism. In 2022 and 2023, trade is expected to grow strongly. The amount of goods traded worldwide is still expected to grow this year, even after everything, but obviously slower than expected due to the war and COVID-19 outbreaks in many parts of China as we are seeing right now. Reverting demand from goods to services would also slow trade growth. Meanwhile, expect higher commodity prices to boost global trade dollar value. Recent Japanese import data show a pattern. In February of 2002, the country imported less but at a higher cost. Like trade, international, clap international capital flows fell early in the pandemic and have since recovered. For the first time since 2005, FDI flows, like companies buying, building or reinvesting in operations abroad, fell below $1 trillion in 2020. 
Unsurprisingly, record levels of economic uncertainty prompted firms to delay new investment plans. Now see, the Ukrainian conflict has prompted the exit of over 400 foreign firms from Russia. But not yet a wave of asset sales that would reduce the FDI. Since Russia only holds about 1% of global FDI stocks, the war's effect on international corporate investment are likely to be macroeconomic. The battle may slow global GDP growth by more than 1% next year, and FDI will suffer from slower growth as companies defend existing markets rather than expanding into new ones. Also included in international capital flows is portfolio investment. Unlike FDI, it does not involve control over foreign business entities like portfolio flows fell and rose faster than FDI during the pandemic. But the Ukraine war has caused a predictable, yet modest, pullback in emerging market portfolio investment. So looking ahead, the globalization of information flows is fraught with uncertainty. Major economies are regulating international data flows in very different ways, potentially causing significant friction. During the pandemic, international data flows increased, as did cyber threats. Travel to foreign countries fell 73% in 2020 and 71% in 2021 compared to pre-pandemic levels. The pandemic halted three decades of global travel growth, and the war will even slow Europe's recovery. Beyond the impact on the tourism industry and tourism-dependent economies, the main issue for businesses has been travel restrictions. Business travel is usually vital to multinational firms' internal management and external business relationships. Travel restrictions may have hampered trade and FDI recovery. Business travel isn't expected to fully recover until 2025, so managers will need to continue nurturing internal and external relationships remotely. Beyond travel, the pandemic slowed but did not stop global migration. Expats increased by about 2 million in 2020, but less than what the UN had predicted before the pandemic. But the important part here is, during the first three weeks of military action in Ukraine, more than 3 million refugees fled Ukraine, making this the largest refugee crisis in Europe since World War II. Okay, now, kind of again getting into capitalism, See, globalization had begun to reverse after the recession in 2020 and the pandemic fueled fears and hatred towards foreigners, especially the Chinese, right? We all know that. Masks and vaccines were among the items exposed as being vulnerable to global supply chains. So many business leaders and analysts believe that the Ukraine war will hasten many nations' quests for self-sufficiency like India being a prime example. The main driver is the coordinated campaign by significant powers to isolate Russia from the global economy. Regional powers like India, Brazil and Nigeria study America's financial weapons of mass destruction, wondering how to adjust their defenses to avoid being hit. The global economy has always been in a flux, as history shows. Everyone knows that for centuries, nations' economic standings have risen and fallen like the kids game King of the Hill. So, the term globalization itself from this perspective appears to be subjective. Globalization, as I said, is unlikely to end in one fell soup. Its nature, as it has become, will continue to grow regardless of what. 
But aside from that, there are different centers of gravity among today's advanced democracies. Consider the EU and the UK versus North America. Within each, some nations are more prone to rapid globalization than others. And in this regard, the contours of globalization may become more graduated even within the West. However, the trajectory of China's international growth will be more significant in how globalization continues to evolve globally. And since there are no ideas or authority competitions in China, as it is governed by a uniform set of political or policy objectives, I believe that China's future path to sustaining robust long-term economic growth is fundamentally problematic. This is due to Beijing's oxymoron socialist market economy strategy. Okay, getting to India, the world's largest democracy with a 1.3 billion people population, may actually will be a significant globalization pull. Because we are a country rich in natural resources, straddling two major oceans, and a large population of our like our population is highly educated in science and technology. But India's economic record reflects a governance and policy regime that stifles growth. Assuming these are some of the anchors of the global economic topography, it seems unlikely that globalization will soon fade away, resulting in thousands of economically atomistic self-contained units. But a possible future scenario for globalization is that the world economy will continue to develop two or more dominant economic clusters, one composed of advanced democracies, centered on the G7, the EU, and other like-minded advanced democracies, and the other dominated by China's socialist economic cluster, which includes Russia and the CIS. Supply chains and R&D investment are two critical dimensions to be concerned about. This change would likely negatively impact efficiency and prices, driving both upstream and downstream within each block and globally. Dismantling or rerouting existing supply chains can be very time-consuming and costly, especially if new production facilities, warehouses, and transportation networks are required. It will not be easy to plan and execute smooth transitions. Also, while there is an economic argument for decoupling R&D activities between the two blocks, the adverse bottom-line effects are likely huge. Technical decoupling would entail giving up substantial commercial benefits derived from scale and scope economies realized by applying advances in technology on the factory floor. So the question for politicians may be, is technological decoupling worth it to have separate blocks? If separate blocks coexist, technology standards may need to be split. Maintaining different technology standards rather than a single global standard can be difficult economically. And thus technological relations have been described as globalization, right, as a whole. So in that light, claims that Russia's war will disrupt globalization are misdiagnosed. Russia is not only a modest economic power, but also a modest technological power today. The thing is, only China's actions, given its global economic and technological significance, could cause a real fissure in globalization, aided and abetted by the advanced democracy's failures to step up in the plate over the past three decades. And as previously stated, China's economy is plagued by fundamental contradictions that have eroded its strength for years. And unless these are addressed, the outlook is not actually as good as many may believe. 
whether China will try to unilaterally or opportunistically cause a fundamental rupture in globalization of the world economy is another matter. But one thing is for sure. If China follows this path, it will not hesitate to usurp Russia. But another issue is that, like another point rather is that, in previous eras, new ideas have emerged and institutional actors implemented market-based mechanisms to address capitalism's issues. Modern forms of intervention may be required because of the increasing importance of intangible assets and the changing role of workers, consumers and savers. The pandemic's economic shock allows us to reassess how well the current model works and whether it fits the challenges and opportunities of today and tomorrow. There is also the issue of corporate social responsibility in the 21st century and how to make capitalism more inclusive. The last 50 years have seen a global economy dominated by Western democracies, with the US at the forefront. But emerging economies are becoming prominent and competitive in their own right and more dynamic than the United States. The result is a more multipolar global economy. China's rapid growth and the global scale best exemplify this challenge. But there are also economic ties that exist between China and the US. And due to its large trade surplus and need for foreign exchange reserves, China owns roughly 4% of the US national debt. Its state capitalism system is starting to produce global companies that look for international opportunities. For the first time in 2020, the Fortune Global 500 list of the world's largest public companies included more Chinese and Hong Kong-based firms, 124 of them, than US firms, 121. China's comprehensive industrial policy is starting to close the gap in its goal to become a technological superpower, including advanced communications and 5G, artificial intelligence and biotech. And since World War II actually, the United States has led the world in technology research, development and commercialization. Federal R&D funding as a percentage of GDP peaked in the 1970s at over 2% and has since fallen to 0.7% in 2018. It is already being tested whether American companies can compete in an innovation and infrastructure investment area while meeting short-term market expectations. So the challenges facing the American model of capitalism in a multipolar global economy are global. This includes other large economies and economic regions and their companies and the, and the nature of multilateral institutions that help facilitate, govern, arbitrate and regulate the global economy. This changing global economy presents new challenging choices for the American model and other large economies and corporations together. As companies reassess their global strategies, it's important to remember that even in turbulent times, there is some continuity. Economic efficiency alone driving global flow patterns was always a myth. Globalization has always been uneven, with national differences and conflicts dampening global flows. Even before the current crisis, only about 20% of the global economic output ended up in a country other than the one that produced it. While the size and the geographic reach of international flows fluctuate, the fundamental drivers of global strategy remain constant. The similarities and differences between countries define the landscape for international value creation. And the global strategist must navigate the opportunities and threats presented by both. Global strategies must be updated as the landscape shifts, but managers should also avoid costly overreactions to major globalization shocks because, as we have already pretty evidently established today, this economy that we have built 
as of now is too dynamic to predict in a podcast episode well that was about it for today thank you so much for sticking by till the end you can pretty much now factor in wherever mcdonalds comes into play you went through all of it you can figure it out anyways take care and have a great day i will see you next week and oh before i go do not forget to review the podcast it will mean a lot to me keep cashing bye <laughs>